is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs. I have the distinguished pleasure of being the director of Web Yeshiva and also the editor of the journal Tradition. Uh, welcome to this evening's very special program, two conversations dedicated to the life and legacy of Rabbi Joseph B. Salavechik Zecher Tzadik Levracha. The Rav, of course, uh, cannot be understated. Uh, his significance to our religious community, even now coming up on 30 years after his passing and frankly, nearly 40 years after he was forced to leave the public stage because of, of illness. Nevertheless, his presence, his teaching, his Torah, his thought and philosophy continues to animate our lives as individuals and as a religious community. Of course, at Tradition, we're very proud of our long connection to publishing the thought of Rabbi Soloveitchik and thought about the thought of Rabbi Soloveitchik. Our journal was, I believe, the pioneer in publishing works in his lifetime. Uh, and then certainly the, the array of uh, works that have been published uh, since his passing, exploring the meaning of his thought. And in our upcoming issue to be released in about a month's time, we will be marking the 120th anniversary of his birth, which is today. The 12th of Adar is Rabbi Soloveitchik's uh, birthday. And uh, he is still going strong as a force on the Jewish scene. And of course, the upcoming 30th Yard site to mark his passing. And that special issue, uh, an extra large issue of tradition, will contain uh, very many articles by both veteran scholars of the Rav, students of the Rav, as well as the younger generation, the Dor Asher Lo Yada et Yosef uh, Dov Soloveitchik, uh, but for whom his teaching is still very alive and very present. In an hour's time, uh, in a, just about an hour, I will be back here with a very special guest, Dr. Tova Lichtenstein, the daughter of Rabbi Soloveitchik. Uh, and at that moment, we will, we will, of course, make mention of the fact that uh, she just got up from Shiva this morning for her sister, uh, Dr. Atara Tversky. More about that later. But now I'm very pleased to introduce Rabbi Chaim Bravender, who, of course, many of you know as the founding Rosh Hashiva and pioneering educator here in Jerusalem and in Israel. He is, of course, the Rosh Hashiva of the Web Yeshiva. And lower down on his CV, but for tonight, perhaps most significant, in 1965, in our journal of Jewish thought, a young Chaim Bravender served as the associate managing editor. And it was his job to get Rabbi Soloveitchik to finally deliver on the long promise he had made to submit an article to tradition. That article, of course, became The Lonely Man of Faith. He is joined in conversation by our friend Molly Brofsky, who is an editorial board member of our journal, also an accomplished social worker and educator, primarily at Michlelet Mevaseret Yerushalayim here in Jerusalem, as well as in private practice in Gush Etzion. In the upcoming issue, uh, Molly okay. has an article Molly has an article sound? on the enduring pedagogical relevance of Rabbi Soloveitchik. Sound coming from you. 
just asking everybody to please mute themselves. Uh, the the challenge of the ongoing the ongoing the ongoing uh, pedagogical relevance of Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, for the next generation. How do we teach his his thought to people that are youngsters that are even further removed and are frankly wrestling with generational questions that would have been uh, likely quite unimaginable to Rabbi Soloveitchik. And that's something that we're also looking forward to reading in the new issue. I will now turn over the conversation to, to Molly Brofsky and Rabbi Chaim Bravender to talk about what it means to be a student of the Rav across the generations, to be a Talmud and to be Talmidei Talmideihon of Rabbi Soloveitchik now 120 years after his birth, 30 years after his passing. After they're done, there'll be a short break, and then we'll come back at the top of the hour with Dr. Toba Lichtenstein. Mrs. Brofsky and Rabbi Bravender, Bavakasha. I think Molly Brofsky is supposed to start. Right. I don't see Rabbi Bravender on the screen, um, but I'll keep talking. At least I hear you, Rabbi Bravender. Um, Maybe you'll stop pull. video. One second. One second. No. Oh, okay. There you go. Okay. Wow. Rabbi Bravender, just start your video and everyone will see you. I know. I know. I did it. I did it. Yay. <laughs> Excellent. Um, all right, Bravender, I just want to start by saying it's really an honor for me to be having this conversation with you. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity that Jeff gave me, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about about okay. things. But it's even just an opportunity to have a conversation with you for me is really sounds like you really have it in for me. I do have really have it in for you. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. For those on the screen, Rabbi Bravender was my teacher, not only but you know starting from 1991 when I went to Madrasha. Uh, or Bravinder, excuse me. Um, okay, I'm going to start by asking you, um, can you share with us memories of the Rub as a teacher? Because if we're talking about the Rub's enduring pedagogical legacy, I think many of us would be curious, um, especially those of us who, who relate to you also as a uh, master pedagogue, what your memories are of the Rub as a teacher and um, what what did you do? What, if anything, did you take from the Rav in terms of your teaching style or approach? Okay, I'm going to try to answer the question, but I, I want you to understand that I have a tendency to romanticize things, to make them seem what they might not have been. And it might be me talking, uh, not so much. So I don't know what to do about that. I'm just not um, such a good storyteller. But I will say this. When I came to the Yeshiva University, I was placed by Rabbi Zach in a very, in a high shear, a shear much more advanced than I was. And the reason for that was that I spoke Yiddish. And uh, being able to speak Yiddish, apparently Rabbi Sachs thought that if you could speak Yiddish, you must be very learned. And in fact, the truth was I had never heard Rabbi Sachs, Sichrodo Lebrocha, was a Litvak. 
And he had this funny way. He kept asking me to say, Was Zokdrase? And I never had heard in my life anybody call Rashi Rasi. I didn't know what he wanted. So I just read the Gemara that I was, was and and so that was it. I was put in a high, and that was my, uh, that was how I got to where I got to. Because you you start off high on the escalator, you just keep going. So I didn't know at first what the Shia was all about. Uh, because in order to understand, I figured out later on, I sort of figured out, that in order to understand what Rabbi Soloveitchik was teaching, you had to know the Gemara very well. It wasn't a shir where you learned how to read the Gemara. It was a shir where you learned to understand things that nobody ever understood before. So I was not into that. I thought of myself as being like the shir was in, I divided up into thirds. There was the bottom third that might as well have not come. And there was the top third that really seemed to understand what was going on. And I was hopeful that I was in the middle third someplace. And and in that middle third, you know, I try to avoid ever coming into contact with anything that the Rav was saying in Shia because I was frightened out of my wits that he would ask me a question. And if you know the answer to the question, you can't really say it as well as you should be able to say it. So you're double losing. I mean, a- anyway, and the only victory you could have is hope that you'll daven mincha after after shir, or something of the sort. So in latter years, after I came to Eretz Israel and uh, did whatever I did and learned in a kolel and it kind of got more understanding about my own situation vis-a-vis learning Torah, I thought back again and again at the at the Rav Shir and what it might have done for me. What sort of influence did the Rav have? I mean, I, the Rav didn't need me to say that he was brilliant, that he didn't need me to say that he knew what he was talking about. It didn't need me to to repeat that. So what was it that I might have inherited from Rabbi Soloveitchik or might have thought about, not inherited, just thought about? My feeling was that Rabbi Soloveitchik often, not always, no one is consistent, but very often Rabbi Soloveitchik came in and and had uh, a battle with the Gemara. It was he did not come to teach us, I thought. He came to learn with us. And the way it was, there were like 30 or 40 guys in the shear, which is, they say 30 showed up. So it was 30 against one. That's a chavrusa. It was a chavrusa. And, and, and the Rav didn't like it when somebody made a bad suggestion. It wasn't like when you become a teacher and they tell you, oh, you should encourage the students and you should help them to say something right instead of saying something wrong. In the sheer, I felt, again, you know, romanticizing, I felt that the sheer was about getting to the truth. And the Rav was the leader, of course, getting to the truth. And we're supposed to get 
closer to the truth. We're supposed to understand things better. And and so the, the Rav participated in that. He didn't sit back and say, look, I know the truth. If one of you guys want to try it, you can. He said, we're going to get to the truth. We're going to somehow figure out what this machlokas means. And that, it, I, mean, I didn't realize it at the time, naturally, because, you know, you have to be really clever to realize things when they happen. But so I didn't, I, I didn't realize it, though, but, but in fact, over time, I, I, I thought that this is really a remarkable idea, that teaching is not about, it's not like car mechanics, you know, where you have certain things, they do the same thing all the time, and you could learn how to work with them. It was a search for some idea which could have a real uh, uh, could have real influence on your life, on what you're doing. On uh, uh, but I didn't get it at the time. It took me. <laughs> it took me. Uh, it took me time. So it. I think that when I teach, when I teach, I like to imagine that I could do that in some way or other, and that. I don't have to come to a class that I teach or a guru that I learn with sort of having it all figured out and uh, pushing my figured it out down on somebody else. But if there is a notion of, of Talmud Torah, which is a mitzvah, it's somehow it's supposed to be enhancing. It's supposed to do something to my life. It's supposed to... So, it's not the the text that gives you the answer. It's the text that creates the parameters for the question. And, and I think that, uh, I hope that I tried in some way to give that impression. I can't say that uh, it's the Rob's influence because influence is a word that you have to, you know, you have to be a Talmud. I was not the, that kind of Talmud, but I think really that the, the influence is there. That in some ways, it's sometimes, you know, the Rav in Shear, he was in a different world. He was in a different world. He, I, I mean, I, I, can tell, uh, I can tell a short story, you know. And I have some uh... everything is you know has to go through some kind of crucible of lush and horror you know there was there was always in Wayu, like every other yeshiva some sort of difficulty with the mashgiach you know the boys who were really into it and and who were knowledgeable and uh, whatever words you want to uh, mm -hmm. attach to them uh, they weren't so interested in getting Musa. You know, <laughs> that was not their their thing. So there was a law promulgated for a short time that when the Mashkiach came, and the Mashkiach was a very outstanding person, apparently very highly regarded in the world of other yeshivas. Uh, so I only knew him by what he looked like. I didn't have anything to do with him. But again, since he spoke in Yiddish, I was always singled out as being one of the people who should certainly hang around to listen to what he had to say. 
So anyway, he came, they promulgated an edict. And the edict was, the way it used to be, Rabbi, whatever his name is, I don't know, this, he, he could come into the shir and to say Dvar Musar, and then everybody who felt that he could escape ran out and escaped. And mm -hmm. the, the the Rebbe, who was giving a shear, the Rebbe, who was giving a shear, also escaped. I mean, well, the, the Rebbe is not going to listen to Musa that he's giving Talmudin, right? That's sort of ridiculous. So one time, the, so when this edict was promulgated that you had to, that you, the, I'm sorry, the edict that was promulgated was that the Rebbe had to stay. Mm -hmm. The Rebbe had to stay. So you had this situation. They comes in, the Mashgir the, the comes in, the Rashi, the Rob is giving Shir, who's Yevomus, which everybody knows is a little bit trying. And that's uh, so the, the, the uh, Mashgir starts talking. The Rav closes the Gemara and he sits there. He sits there learning. And after about 10 minutes of the Mashgir's talk, uh, the Rav opens, his, opens the Gemara while he's talking, opens the Gemara. And he just goes back to learning the sugi that he was learning before the Mashgir came in. At the time, at the time, I didn't realize what had happened. I thought that, you know, they maybe they had some disagreement or they didn't get along about something. But after a while, I understood that the Rav never got out of the sugi. He, he never turned himself off. He was just captured by the Gemara. And the Mashkiach turned around. He saw the Rav looking at the Gemara and starting to talk. He was learning the Gemara, and uh, I mean, there's no doubt that the Rav had no interest in uh, embarrassing the Mashkir. It just was the most amazing thing wow. that you could be on a page of Gemara, and that's where you are. That's the world at that moment. There is no other world, so it just didn't work, this mm -hmm. idea that the, that the Rebbe should stay. These are thoughts that affected me. I mean, I don't think I ever did that. I don't <laughs> think I could do that. But if you see teaching as being like putting people into a mindset or, or getting them thinking about what we've been doing for the last 2,000 years, which I think is, you know, is a big problem in, in Eretz Israel because everybody in Eretz Israel wants to be an Israeli. And the trouble with being an Israeli that is that only started a couple of years ago. Exactly. They, they uh, skip the middle. Uh, it's like, you know, the Tanakh, they skip the entire middle, and then it's like, you know, 19... Uh, Yeah. You know that I know there are high school kids who are angry at Rabbi's Rabbi Cook for wearing those kind of clothes. Mm -hmm. you know, doesn't he have clothes? Doesn't he have clothes? <laughs> uh, so, so it's a problem. It, it's it's a problem. Like like you want to teach somebody how to read the Gemara. Okay, that's good. And you want to teach somebody how to think about the Gemara. That's also good. But how do you teach them to be in the Gemara? 
How do you teach them to be part of a chain of thoughts that amount to something? Which, by the way, is what we do in Eretz Israel. We try to make it amount to something, even though the last few days have been a little tenuous. But uh, hopefully we'll get through it. Yeah, okay, I did it. I tried. That was, that, I mean, that was, uh, first of all, my first, I have a whole bunch of comments that I kind of, you know, wrote down for myself. The first is that I'm, I'm suspecting that you're a little too unassuming about yourself in the Rev's Shear, but that, you know, will leave to whatever... Not, not at all. No, no humility in me. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I, I had a lot of thoughts. I, first of all, I find it fascinating the way you're describing teaching. First of all, it, it sounds like the experience in the Rav's Shear may have been a different experience than when the Rav would speak publicly. Um, do, do you know what I'm saying? Like if he was speaking, the, the very famous um, Chuva. Uh, lectures and etc where the rough could be crystal clear and it wasn't a chavrusa it was the rough giving over his thought um although what i seem to understand from people describing it is that it was no less of a kind of experiential transformative environment that was created um but but i really found it fascinating that in sheer what the rough was doing at least, you know, what you're describing is really engaging with the Talmudim in this kind of, as two things you said struck me very deeply, the battle for the truth and the truth really matters, right? And that's not just a battle for the truth. It's a battle for the truth that's going to change our lives and dictate to us how to live. And it also reminded me of, you know, like your your description of how the Rav learned, in how he learned Bichlal and how he learned in Shir. There are all those passages that I think so many of uh, almost anybody who opens the rav, because they're relatively you know beautiful and easy passages, comes across somewhere that you know where the rav talks about how he would sit and learn, and he felt that the that Rashi was there and the Tosfos were there, and and he says very clearly um, that he says that this was not a he says it's you know he says this in Vikashtim it wasn't a childhood fantasy it started in my childhood and it continued it was a real experience of the Masora, and. That's what it sounds like you're describing. And it, it's just it's beautiful to hear that, like, th again, it's the way um, the way um, Rabbi Sachs was saying at the beginning, right, that, that like, there are the Talmudim, and then there are the ones who, who didn't have that experience but have to kind of come after. It's, it's really inspiring for those of us who, who just know the rough from his writings to, to get this picture filled and to see that the way that he lived, how it parallels the, the things that he expresses in his work. So I find that very moving. And I also, I, I, I like that idea that, because I do think, Rabbi Ravinder, that that's how you teach as well. That when you're teaching a shir, you're inviting your students to overhear a conversation that you're having, that you're having with the text, that you're having with the Masora. And, 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 and I love that idea that, that the goal of doing that is, um, is, is a, I guess, I don't know if you're doing it on purpose to engage the student or if that's just a side effect, but it's to impress the student with the idea that you're really striving for some type of transformative truth. Um, so that, that, that I find really fascinating. Now, if you want, you could say something more about that, or if not, I want to ask you another question that I think uh, is on, is on, I don't even know if it's so much on my mind. It's, it was on, it was on Jeff's mind. 
Um, let me ask, and then you could decide where you want to go. So Jeff mentioned that, um, you know, we all know that the Rav gave the first Gemara Shir to women at Stern. And I think we all also know that very many people think of you as one of the, um, you know, first, I, I don't know, trailblazers of teaching Torah Shabbat to women. So I, I'm just meaning, I my suspicion, and you can tell me whether you think I'm right when it comes to you, Okay. My, my suspicion, and tell me if I'm totally wrong. So we have the, the sound. Wait a second. Sound. Who's in charge? Sure. Ezra, are you there? Yeah, yeah the sound's coming in now. Oh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, okay. So, so my suspicion is that you can tell me what you think, but for the Rav and maybe possibly for you, um, it, the, the, the impetus for doing that was let's say, primarily um, compelled by, like, just the idea of Torah and Torah being accessible to everybody, right? More than, oh, I want to do this, like, trailblazing new thing. It was just more of, like, an obvious, um, like, step that had to do with, I actually remember, Ray Abravinder, your shear about women in Talmud Torah, and I remember what you said. You said, if, if Talmud Torah is your connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then obviously every human being should be learning Torah, right? Torah Shabbat. Um, so I'm just curious, how, how, do you think, like, how, how do you conceptualize, I don't know. <laughs> wait, 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 which is the question? I don't know. The question is, I guess, what do you, do, do you, do you think that you, that, that, there, that there are any lines of similarity between the rubs trailblazing on this issue and your trailblazing on this issue. You have thoughts about, um, you know, like how come it sort of happened that, that you know, that these things that, that like, that the rub became the, the, the leader on this. I'm, I'm just curious about, you know, just if you have any thoughts on this. And I'm okay. Very open. Okay. I'm going to do it. Good. Thank you. Listen, first of all, I have to say this. Anybody who thinks that there's any comparison between what I did and what the Rav did is totally mistaken and misunderstanding. There's nothing to compare. Look, Rabbi Soloveitchik came from a world, a world that had made many decisions about how to learn and what to learn and who should learn and all of that, and when he did what he did, he was grappling with a world. He wasn't just sitting in Stern College. He became a footnote forever, right? And, and he knew what he was doing, and he knew why he was doing it. He did it in his family. He did it as, uh, you know, et cetera. And he, he did something very important nationally. I came from the Yeshiva Flatbush which is a co-ed Jewish school. To me, it was unthinkable. I never, I never thought of this idea that women couldn't do, couldn't learn Torah. I mean, it never occurred to me. Like, it's only after I came to Eretz Israel, or even in YU a little bit, you know, there are always, always these radical right-wing positions in the oddest places. So, so to me, for me, I, in Flatbush, the deal was this. When you were a senior, junior or senior in high school in Flatbush, 
you could learn either Gemara five periods a week or choose to learn Gemara nine periods a week. So if you chose, so the, the, the firm types it all went to nine, nine hours a week, including me. And my year, in my year, there was one girl who opted for that group. And I had to admit that she was the best. She outdid us, who were thought very highly of ourselves, naturally. Fabrice, that type of school, you know, where for some reason you think that if you go there, there's something special about you. So I was happy to go to YU and get that knocked out of me. But you know, <laughs> so, where else but, you said the better learners also didn't think they necessarily needed most. So, but I just I say there's no because when I came to Eretz Israel, and somebody said girls, women, Torah, to me it made sense. I didn't need I didn't need a kind of uh, uh, some sort of investiture from heaven to know that that girls should learn Torah. It seemed to me like the most obvious thing in the in the world, and and the fact that the Rav, who at the time, gave that opening shear in Stern College. That didn't even interest me that much, you know, like, why not? I mean, if he has time for that, that's, you know, that's his business. It's not the, and, and so it seemed to me it was only after I started, and I actually did it in, in a, in a Haredi yeshiva, as part of a Haredi yeshiva, which is a, another story for which they would not like to forgive me, uh, I thought it was normal. I didn't think I was doing something revolutionary. What could possibly be revolutionary about girls learning Torah? I mean, it was it was not one of the categories that I was able to focus upon. So I didn't. So I did it. Then they told me, oh, you know, you did it. You did it. You know, I, I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. I just did what I thought was simple and normal. Right? I wonder if the rough felt the same way. What? I wonder if when, when Rav Soloveitchik did it, he felt the same way. Can't tell you. I can't tell you. Like I say, I think Rabbi Soloveitchik changed the course mm-hmm. of things. By doing I, it. It was a big thing. Mm-hmm. It was a big thing that year. Uh, yeah. I don't know whether it was a big thing for content, but it was a big thing for the idea of it. That... Uh, mm-hmm. that uh, yeah. I, I, I been naive about that. I'm just saying the, the ideology. That, you know, a lot of people take the credit for being the leaders of the revolution for for women's learning. I said, take it and divide it up amongst yourself. Everybody get a little bit. I I generally uh, uh, like to teach women because they they are less uh, hampered by ideas that they have inherited from rebellion. So, you know, the, they can sometimes be more interesting. But, you know, I like teaching. I like teaching. So I do my best. So, thank you. <laughs> I'm finished. I'm finished with that. <laughs> okay. Um, so can I, I, I'd like to take you back to some of the other things that you said in the beginning. Because I think they really are so important, which is the way you described that for the Rav, what he was trying to do wasn't just to convey knowledge, but was to convey, let's use the word the Masora, right? That's kind of uh, kind of all-encompassing, uh, you know, word for, for a lot of 
things, but kind of what you had alluded to, you know, all that stuff in between, you know, Chorban Bayit, Shani, and Shivat let's say, Hashlishi. I, I didn't say, I didn't say that's what the Rav was trying to do. I don't okay. know what the Rav was trying to do. What I said was, I think it affected me in that way. Okay. Right, it could be that I was totally off, uh, off. Right. I, so, I, I also not, can't presume. I was not a great star <laughs> at, okay. the, at the event. Um, I, I mean, I also can't presume to know what the Rav was trying to do, um, even less, obviously, much, much less than you who, I, I, you know, were as direct Talmud. I know that the Rav says a couple of times in his writings that he wanted to affect the hearts of his students and not just their minds. Um, and you are saying that that was, it sounds to me like what you're saying was that that was kind of what happened. That was your experience. So. I guess what I'm asking is, hmm, this is I, I, I guess it, maybe what was it in the way that the Rav taught, like the Rav always says I was never able to do that, but you are living proof that he was, right? Because he did affect you that way. So what was it? Was it the, 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 the fact, was it the messages he said? Was it the, as you described earlier, the fact that he was completely engrossed in his Talmud Torah, that he lived, you know, that he kind of conveyed it through the, who he was? What do you, how do you think, he, if he was able to do it, how was it? And I guess then the question for us is because we're thinking about the pedagogical message, I think that's a, one of the biggest challenges facing educators today, which I think you also alluded to, which is how do we touch our students' hearts and souls and not just their minds? So if you have any kind of pedagogical advice, I think we would all appreciate hearing uh, your thoughts. It's really simple. You have to teach what you enjoy preparing. Don't teach anything you don't like. Uh, unless you're willing to be honest about it and tell the students why you don't like it. Uh, that's what uh, that's what I think. Uh, that's what I think you should do. That's what I think you should do. And yeah, uh, you, you have to work on communication always because people misunderstand things. But you have to recognize the fact that you can make mistakes about what people understand or what they don't understand. But uh, how did the Rav do it? I'll tell you. I'll tell you another story. Well, the last year I was in yeshiva, we learned Yevomus. It's a masechet, uh, which is well known for tiring out the learners. because like a lot of repetition of cases and other cases that two wives and three nephews and four, you know, it's like sort of wearying. So uh, they announced the Masechet for the year. I don't know, I don't know what it was. I don't remember what it was. Let's say it's Yedushin. The Rav would come in on the first day and somebody would get him a Gemara, you know, a Gemara. So the, we were supposed to learn Baba Kama. Again, I don't know if that's correct. We were supposed to learn Baba Kama. And then instead, somebody put Yavamas on the table, on his desk. He opens it up. He says, it's the wrong Gemara. So the, there was a clack in the group that said, no, we want to learn Yavamas. We never learned Yavamas. You know, that kind of thing. So the Rav said, said to us, he said, okay, we can learn Yavamas, but you know, I haven't learned Yavamas in many years. 
you know, so I always thought, like, what's the difference? You know, many years, not many years, you know, he must have it under control. He says, no, he says, I'm not sure. But anyway, we started learning Yavamas. And we learned, and we learned, and we learned, and we got to Dafches. Remember, the Rav said, oh, now, I mean, I didn't, I'm not quoting him. I don't remember what the words were. He says, now, I see we made a mistake. And they started over again from that base. Wow. <laughs> I thought that was that was absolutely remarkable. I've never tried that. <laughs> I'm afraid no one will show up for the next year, but but uh, I thought it was amazing. It was amazing because it always sounded like he absolutely had it under control. So it's something that he, and and we sort of knew it because, you know, there are some svarim with briska shiurim on, on Yavamas, Imre Moshe. And so we used to look at the svarim, you know, by that time I was already, this was my last year in, in YU. I was already a little more aware of what's going on than when I came. So he was willing. He was willing not to fool us, not to try to, it was just like straight out. It was just didn't have, didn't get it right. So I thought that was, uh, but, but like I said, I don't think that the rub was, you know, if there is a, 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 if there's something called a teacher, even though the rub always spoke about himself as a Malamid, and everybody likes to quote that, you know, I sort of like to make up for the poor salaries. <laughs> I don't think that's what he meant. I don't think he meant that he meant it's like it's like with children. You know, you you teach children, little little children, you teach them gracious. There's absolute wonder. There's no there's totally willingness to accept whatever you whatever you tell them they they have this mind their mind is able to imagine whatever you teach them and it's like when you get older you know they and somebody tells you no no this is not real and that's not real and, that, and then you know you start thinking that you don't really know anything about anything you know that's called like advanced that's very advanced to be very skeptical about uh, anything. So I think that's what the Rav meant when he, when he said he's a Malamed. He could create a world. It's children. It's like it's uh, the Malamedim are for the little children. You know, I remember that the, you know, that story, there's a, there's a video. You know, the Rav sometimes talked about this Malamed that he had when he was a child. Yeah. He remembered I remember Lubavitcher Rebbe, you know, yeah. that, that video oh, and some yeah, yeah. old man walking in. Lubavitcher Rebbe stands up. <laughs> he, was, he was his Rebbe when he was a child. It's not just, it's not just going into a new world. It's the creation of that world. There is a world. There's a world of, of creation, of Bria. There's a creation. I mean, you, you know, children. Little children, they, they take it like you give it to them. They don't have any difficulty. They don't have any difficulty with a Munah or with, with uh, 
davening or brachas. I mean, we have to learn all of that. We have to learn how miserable we are about all the things that we do. And and we're very successful at that. We're very successful at, at doing that. Mm-hmm. But but the Rav said, he's a malamid. He remembered the world of childhood. You know, the childhood that he had, where he had somebody came in with a with a beard and said, this is how it happened. There was day one and day two and day three, and that's the way it is. And once you get, you once you're brought into that world, it's not so easy to get out of it. <laughs> not so easy to get out of it. And that, I think that that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. And I'm sorry. Sometimes I'm sorry I missed out on it, more or less. But I still think I can give it over to others. In a manner of speaking, there was a, a young man who was in the yeshiva, in my yeshiva, whose name is Agassi, was, a, was an artist. And he uh, he got very sick and eventually died. But before he died, we used to learn, uh, we used to learn Chumash together. You know, it's wonderful, these guys, he's in Pennsylvania and I'm in Yerushalayim, and you can have a chavrusa. So I said, uh, so after after I, he died, I, I said, I want to continue the Chavrusa with his children, six and three. It's absolutely wonderful for me. I don't think it's so good for them. <laughs> but because, you know, they, uh, I, mean, I have a daughter who teaches kindergarten who is really good at it. And I'm, I can't do that. But I can be there. I get asked them a question. I can be happy if they answer it. They all answer it. They're the two girls so, answer, yeah. answer, answer my question. It's wonderful. I'm guessing they enjoy I'm it. with them. You know, like I'm with them. Hmm? What? I didn't hear. No, I'm, I, I'm saying I'm guessing they're enjoying it if they're answering you. But um, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe the mother, the mother beat. <laughs> maybe, maybe she's hitting them. Um, and so what I, what I just heard you say, if I understood you correctly, was if you love what you're learning, right? Because that was what you started with. If you love what you're learning and you experience it as this wonderful world that's, you know, childlike in its wonder and, it, and its compelling beauty, then when you teach it from that place, and you're teaching from your heart and not just from your head, then your students will be able to join you in that world. That's that's how I'm hearing your, what you're saying, um, and you're and and it's fascinating to think of the, you know the, the rub doing that, um, but it, it sounds you know right. <laughs> it sounds you know and also you, we have all these stories. The rub and the rub talks about a malamed. He talks about an old child, an old old teacher, and a young child, and he describes exactly what you're describing. How how. With the children, they can go through the experiences of the Tanakh. They can, you know, sing with David and cry with Yosef and etc. So, you know, I think uh, it's actually great advice for us as educators because, you know, we all struggle with how do we convey the emotional part. And as you said, it's very easy to to be wise and skeptical. Not so easy to be childlike and uh, and and convey that emotion. But I think that on the other hand, it, if we can learn how, it's not that hard. 
we just have to plug into our own, uh, as you said, choose, teach what you love, teach what you're connected to, teach what you have that, that, you know, spiritual, emotional, religious connection to. And if, hopefully, if we're fortunate, our, our Talmudim will, will pick up on that. That's, I think that's really inspiring advice. And I, I love that it's coming from the Rav, who everybody always thinks of as such an intellectual. And the truth is that that the Rav's power was not only in his intellect. It was, you know, so much of, at least for me, what's powerful is all of the beyond the intellect, underneath the intellect. Uh, well, even though you keep saying, as you said, Molly, I think you're saying it better than I'm saying it. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> but, then, you know, you know, everybody has this challenge, right? This the reality, our reality, which has to be dealt with, and our thoughts, which we have to find place for. And um, certainly the rub on, on his level, uh, a level that's far beyond my comprehension, had to do that all the time. I mean, unlike most people, there he was probably Kachepit all, all the time. You know what Kachepit is? R Rabbi, can I just ask you a question? Exactly. You know, can you just ask me, answer your question? Is it, is it Sunday? <laughs> Rabbi? So somehow you think, you think, well, you know, I really would like to do those questions, give those questions to somebody else, you know. Uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, everybody knows that if a, if a great person relates to a simple person, sometimes that simple person has value way beyond what you could imagine. So all these things, these, this is like the, the obvious challenge in life. It's easy enough to say Kedusha and Tahara, but it's not so easy to take a step in that direction. And and uh, I think the Rav was a master at trying to formulate some aspects of Gujarat, but they're not necessarily my what what I need. I mean, what I need might might be on a very much lower level, but it's the same challenge. You know, it's like there's a challenge on that level, there's a challenge on my level, but you have to know what the challenge is. You have to know. That uh, you know how you how do you summarize your life is a worthy enterprise, and you should do that all the time. You should you know you should that's what the, the Hasidus we we know that tshuva tshuva is an ongoing challenge. It has nothing to do with averis. I mean you know averis might be a jump start to doing tshuva sometimes, but doing tshuva is like a wondrous thing. All the all the rabbis understood that, and they said that this wondrous thing called tshuva, we've got to do it. We've got to get to it. We've got to get to it. We shouldn't wait for averas. You know why wait for an avera? I mean, we can deal with that. Let's get something beyond that. So, in any event, you know, got to try, right? You have to try. Sounds like what you're saying is the Rav was the master model of that. That's. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, do I know every. Your experience was. <laughs> In my experience, he was very powerful. Yeah.
very powerful. You know, even when he spoke, even when the the Rav, you know, had this. Uh, besides being a, that's why I say the Rav was not a great teacher. He was a great chavrusa. Mm-hmm. You know, but but because he all these things that teachers do, he didn't necessarily do. However, he had one talent that he couldn't help himself with, and that was his theatrics, his ability to express himself in whatever language he happened to be talking at the time. But when I when I came when I came to YU, it was the year that the Rav taught the Shir in Hebrew. Because he realized that no one understood the Yiddish that Yiddish. he was speaking before that. But one year he taught Hebrew for, in Hebrew for one year. And after that, he switched to English. And it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. He was great in every in every language. And when he spoke, when he spoke formally, you know, he uh, usually wrote it out, I think. I think it was more or less written out. But his ability, his histrionic ability, was uh, some really something. He was the best, <laughs> the best. You talk about a baseball player. He was really the best at at captivating an audience. I always said the thing about the rub and these yurtside drushes was that the people who didn't understand a word he said loved it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just it was just amazing. It was amazing. No one, no one that I knew of could do that. Right. You just did. You didn't have to. They didn't have to know Gemara. I mean, they gave a sheer on the yardside drushes. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter. They loved it. They knew that they were they were involved in an experience which they couldn't get anyplace else. That was it. All the people who came to Lambert Auditorium and then to the Beit Midrash outside with the television cameras. It couldn't keep him away. It couldn't keep him away. <laughs> yeah, we so had, I, should we go, yeah, go for another question? Yeah, Jeff. Hmm? I think I, I, I didn't hear what you said. I'm saying I think Jeff is gonna is gonna point to the clock. Um, but uh, I, we have another couple of minutes. Uh, if, I'm used to this. Any right, last things you wanted to people. wrap up with? Well, what? Hmm? Just another few minutes if you want to, if you have another question or two, if maybe there's, uh, there were a number of comments in the chat uh, comparing other anecdotes. Uh, Some are more well-known than others. Um, But Molly, if there's another question you want to pitch or if Rabbi Bravin, there's something you want to acquire from Molly, we have uh, time for that. Oh, no. Don't put it on me. Molly, why don't you tell us, why don't you give us a little, a little preview of the article that will be appearing in tradition where you write about Rabbi Soloveitchik's enduring pedagogic legacy. Okay. Well, I, first, I, I will say to, to Rabbi Ravinder that the last thing he just said about the uniqueness of the Rav, right? So then if we're talking about his pedagogic legacy and what we can take from that, so that that can be fundamentally disheartening because we are not, you know, we are, we are never going to have that gift, uh, that pedagogical gift of oration that the Rav had. But I, I still take away from this whole conversation um, that what my brother is really saying is that that beyond the, the gifts that the Rav was, you know, granted from God, you know, the oratory gifts, he he was actually just plugging into his own um, I don't know what you want to call it, his 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 beliefs, his 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 Torah, his connection to Torah. 
And that I think we can all try to do, which kind of, you know, my article is about this question, which we didn't get to really, which is like, which messages of the rubs are, are important today? Are the students of today able to, to relate to the rubs thinking and to the rubs thought? Um, so that's kind of what I wrote about. Obviously, I think there's some things that are obvious. I talked about complexity being so important. I talk about uh, this, this idea that Torah values are fundamental, you know, and, and as like the pillar as being important. A few other things, that's what I touch on. Um, but if you, if, if Jeff gives us one more minute, Ravinder, I'd be happy to hear you think which messages of the rubs maybe are you can answer however you want harder to relate harder to convey or most important to convey or maybe most important to convey because they're hardest to convey. I'd be curious, uh, you know, I don't know if you can answer that, you know, in the last minute and a half, but uh, that's a question I would be interested in hearing your thoughts about. Uh. I don't know what impressed me having learned a little bit more about the senior, the, the, the Rav never rejected the things that he learned in non-Torah uh, venues. He, he, quite the contrary, he promoted them. He promoted them even though uh, learning philosophy might not be uh, what everybody is going to do, but the idea that uh, the world has achieved many things and being part of that achievement, I think uh, the rough found as being positive. Although again, this is not the result of a conversation that I had with Rabbi Salvation, because I didn't. But this is like the impression I have somehow. And uh, it seems to me that that's important. It's important, like, like, what are you going to do? Are you going to reject the world and try to hide out in a monastery, uh, which, which is a solution? I mean, it is a way of doing it. Or uh, will you miss out by doing that? And maybe you don't want to miss out. Or maybe that somehow the world will end up with different parties, you know, the party of the people who don't want to know and the people of the party who do want to know, and they'll have to come to some sort of agreement between themselves because they need each other. That's the way I look at Israel. I mean, it may be, again, romantic and a little childish, but it seems to me that uh, that's what we're going through. That's what, what's happening. Uh, uh, the the different parties uh, the different parties of Torah let's say who are connect themselves to Torah are um, able in many areas to get along and I think that will just be enhanced well I'm not sure that anybody will win I think we have to. I think it's the way I have sort of been in my life. Not always appreciated, but that's the way I think I should do it. Um, I mean, I don't think everybody should do it that way. I don't know what everybody should do. Uh, you know, counseling is not my forte. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful note on yeah. which to end. 
And I thank, thank you, Rabbi Bravender. Thank you, Rabbi Thank you, Molly Browski. I really appreciated that. Thank you so much. We, uh, we will take a very brief break, uh, about three minutes. We'll be back with Dr. Tova Lichtenstein. I remind you all to please visit us at traditiononline.org where you can subscribe to make sure you'll get the upcoming special issue in honor of Rabbi Soloveitchik and to visit us at webyeshiva.org for all of the very, very, very many offerings here on our live interactive online Torah learning platform led by 